All right, well, we're going to pick up at verse 12 because uh, we finished verse 11 last week, and we'll pick up uh, Acts chapter 1 starting at verse 12. I'm going to read all the way through to the end of the chapter, and then we'll pick it up verse by verse. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James, not the other Judas, not Judas Iscariot. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And I was praying to the Lord, asking what kind of car I should buy. He told me an accord. That was a joke. They all drove a Honda. Uh, They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And Jesus also had sisters. uh, For our Catholic brothers and sisters who believe in the perpetual virginity of of Mary, the scriptures don't say that. Uh, She went on to have other children. um, And uh, that's scripturally speaking. She had other children. Matter of fact, uh, one of the books of the Bible was written by Jesus' half-brother, James. So... In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether, uh, the number of names is about 120, and said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, He burst open in the middle, uh, and all of his entrails gushed out, yummy. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is now called, in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. And let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning from the baptism of John to the day that when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, or Barsabbas, who was also surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to uh, his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound of heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with uh, other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then the scripture goes on to talk about the Medes and the, the Parthians and everyone who was represented in this port city was hearing them uh, speak in their language, though they were all Galileans, and they marveled at it. It wasn't a, an obscure tongue. It was, it was a nationality. It was a, a very evident language that they were speaking. Um, and so we're going to take a look at that and go into more detail next week, but I'll touch on it just a little bit tonight. But let's, let's begin up at verse 12. When it says that they returned to Jerusalem, this is chapter 1, verse 12, it says, When they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, and when they had entered, they went up into the upper room 
where they were staying. Now, the idea of this upper room is a place of familiarity. It could have been the exact same room where they had the Last Supper. More than likely it was. Uh, It doesn't completely specify it, but in the context of the language, the way it's laid out, it's a room of familiarity that everyone knew where this upper room was. It was known. They all gathered at this known location. More than likely, I would say, more than likely, very strong likelihood, it is the the room where Jesus... um, um, performed in a sense the communion and, and he said this is my body broken for you this is my blood shed for the remission of your sins it's where he said one of you will betray me um, and so it's probably the exact same location and this is all in obedience to the last portion of the book of Luke uh, when Jesus said, go into Jerusalem and wait upon me for the promise of the Father and so they're in the upper room and they're waiting for this. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. And, and it goes on to list the apostles. Now, the apostles were the 12. And there was a definition of, of how you would obtain a, uh, a, this apostolic authority, this apostleship. And we're going to see that in a moment, what was required. Because they're obviously going to discuss that Judas is no longer among them. And, they're, and, and Peter's going to stand up in the midst of them. And he's going to talk about this obscure text in, in the Psalms. And, you know, when I read that text, I, I don't quite get from that uh, what Peter gets. Uh, but we do know that he, the Lord spoke to him, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is an insight that he had. God obviously used this text to speak to him. It says, when they entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. And now it gives a list. Peter. Now, by this time, you remember Peter was the one that Jesus said, uh, before the rooster crows, you'll denied me three times. And he, he said, you know, I, Lord, I'd, I'd go to prison for you. I'd even die for you. And, um, and we find him just insisting that he is not a follower of Christ. And on the third time he does this, actually the context in the Greek is he's almost saying, I swear to God, I don't know him. And then the rooster crows and Peter wept bitterly, uh, locked eyes with Jesus. Jesus in the distance uh, was in the courtyard as Peter was warming himself by a fire. And he could see Jesus' face all swollen from the beating and the like. And when their eyes locked, it says that Peter wept bitterly. Um, just a fascinating portion for me that, that touches me every time is that when you see uh, this word called anthrakia, it's only used twice in the scriptures. It means black coal fire. Uh, it's, a, it's a fire that's, uh, that, that is created from what they call anthracite. It has a very pungent aroma, almost like the smell of burning tires. Only rich men carried this fuel in their bag because there wasn't uh, you know, an abundance of trees and fuel to be able to burn, so they would carry anthracite in their pack. And so it says that Peter um, was warming himself uh, when he denied Jesus uh, by a black coal fire. Use the word anthracia. Now, what's fascinating about that is it's, it's one of only two places in the scripture where anthracite, anthracia, is used. And so uh, you have five senses of the human body, sight, smell, touch, taste, uh, hearing. And, um, and yet the number one sense uh, for memory recollection is what, what they call the olfactory senses, the sense of smell. So if you close your eyes and you smell freshly cut grass, you think of spring or summer. You smell suntan lotion. You, you smell the perfume of you know, somebody that you're uh, attracted to or drawn to. You smell that it takes you back to a place in time. Uh, when I smell a rose cooking in the oven, it takes me immediately back to our home. Um, on, on Saturday nights, my father would cook a roast. And, and so these, these are all smells that bring you to a place and point in time because the olfactory senses... Uh, cause you to to 
have memory recollection. So imagine this. Uh, Peter says to Jesus, I won't deny you. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go to prison. I'll even die for you. And he's warming himself by this black hole fire. And someone comes up and says, you're a Galilean. You're one of them. He says, no, I'm not. Uh, and, and while he's denying him, he's smelling the fire, uh, the, the fumes of this almost pungent, burning tire smell invading his nostrils. Uh, then another person comes up and says, you know, I saw you were one of them. He says, no, I'm not. And then the young girl comes up and says, you're a Galilean. He says, I swear to God, I don't, I don't know him. And then the rooster crows. Peter locks eyes with Jesus. Uh, sees his swollen face from the beatings. And immediately it says he goes away and he wept bitterly. His heart was broken. He realized everything that Jesus said had come to fulfillment. And, and this, this whole scene is one that he would never forget. And it's sealed by a smell of this anthrakia, this black hole fire. The only other place where we see the word anthrakia used is when, uh, when Jesus is resurrected and uh, Peter has gone back to fishing. He's given up on this whole apostolic ministry. He's finished. He feels as though he's let down the Lord. He has nowhere to go, nothing to do. And he's out fishing. And they had fished all night and caught nothing. And Jesus says from the shore, you know, cast the net on the right side of the boat. Uh, any idiot knows that the fish in the, in the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, are all uh, right fin fish. And, they, you know, just, and, and as he throws the net over, the, the net is so full they can't drag it in. Someone declares, and, and the scripture says, in a sense it, it, it states that it's John, that it's the Lord. Well, Peter's so overwhelmed by this that the Lord has come back and that, you know, he sees the miracle and he sees all these things and his heart is soaring, uh, you know, everything, all the, all the neurons are firing and he's so excited about reconciling with the Lord. He loves him, but he feels like he's let him down. He wants to reconcile. And in his excitement, the scripture says he takes his coat, uh, which is his outer coat. It's what you wear to warm up, uh, similar to when we have the air conditioning cranking in here and I see you all getting bundled up. He, pu- he puts on this coat and he jumps in the water with his coat on and swims ashore while the rest of them are rowing. Now, I was a, an athlete. I was a nationally ranked swimmer. When we swam, you wanted as little drag as possible. You wouldn't wear clothes to you know, swim. You wore a suit, swimsuit, please understand. But you, 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 you wore the smallest suit possible. And, and we would even shave the, the hair off of our arms and our legs. Um, you didn't want any drag in the water. Oftentimes, we'd shave our head or give ourselves a haircut. And uh, I never did that. I just got a swim cap. Um, and, and yet Peter is, is swimming with this big sleeved coat and it's catching water and he's sopping wet and it's, it's cold. It's, it's the early morning because they'd been fishing all night. He was probably chilled to the bone. If you've ever been on, on Galilee in the early morning, it's, it's cold, it's chilly. And, and he comes in and he's, he's, he's just chilled to the bone. And it says that Jesus was cooking fish uh, over a black coal fire, anthrakia. So who's the only person of all of them that need to be warmed? The one who's soaking wet. And so he's by Jesus. Jesus is by the fire. And, uh, and he begins to ask him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? How many times did Jesus and I am three times? Each time he's asking, Peter, do you love me? What's happening to the senses is the smell of this pungent tire is just infusing his nostrils. Boom, right back, memory recollection, seared into his, his mind. It's taking him to that place. And Jesus is, is walking him through every aspect of that. And it's as fresh as it, the moment it had happened because that's the power of the olfactory senses. And, and Peter 
is moved by this. His whole heart is touched. Here's a man that operated in the context of fear. Now he's seen the Lord face to face. God says, now feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend to my flock. He doesn't condemn him. He empowers him. He doesn't condemn him. Uh, he, he, he anoints him. He doesn't condemn him. He, he uh, you know, places a blessing on him. And then following this, you see now Peter with a boldness that he's going to be standing in front of thousands preaching the gospel. And he's always had this leadership ability as one of the folks listed in this. He's always had this leadership ability. He would ask the question nobody else was asking. He'd, he'd ask the question that shouldn't have been asked. Uh, he, he would ask the question that, that uh, you know, was profound. And, and he, even natural leadership ability, and, and history tells us that he was this brute of a fisherman. He was a very large individual. Uh, he'd ultimately be crucified upside down in the presence of his wife who was crucified before him. And he would, he would speak to her and encourage her through the process, just, you know, be strong, keep your eyes on the Lord, as he would die this, this brutal death. Uh, our Catholic brothers and sisters believe him to be the first pope um, that he ended up in Rome. Um, if, if we want to call Rome Babylon, that's where he ended up was in Babylon. Um, there's a, that's a stretch. Um, and, and through this, this apostolic authority, through the first pope, it comes from when Jesus, uh, when Jesus was with Peter up at Caesarea Philippi. And, and he said, I give you the keys of the kingdom upon this rock, I will build my church. And, and even in context with little rock and big rock, Petros meaning Peter rock, um, the context of it still doesn't hold to the fact that he would call him Pope. And, and to that matter, speaking of infallibility as a Pope, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul would call Peter to account, you're wrong. And he would, he would say that to his face in the, the later epistles that, that Paul would write. So infallibility for Peter is absent. Um, there, there's a number of areas where this, this apostolic authority is, is missing. Um, but again, th- there's a, a number of areas where we differ uh, with, with the body of Christ, whatever denomination we have. Um, there are folks in the room tonight that would differ in relation to believing in the gift of tongues or not believing in the gift of the tongues. There are folks in the room probably that are what they call cessationists. So you believe certain gifts died with the apostles. Um, there are those of us in the room that believe all the gifts are valid today and still in use. Um, there are folks in the room who are divided over eschatology. And so when we look at Peter, he's the first one. What we do know about Peter that we can find agreement on, regardless of our denominational uh, affiliation, what we can agree on is that Peter was a natural leader. And so now that's why it lists him as the first when it's going through all who are present because it's Peter who's going to take hold of the meeting. And there are certain kids, you put them in a room and, and there's, there's that one kid that just has his ability to get everybody's attention. Uh, he's got this natural leadership ability. There's a charisma about him that he draws people to him. This is Peter. But now inspired by the Holy Spirit, fear is taken away. Faith is being established. And this gift of leadership is taking on a whole different picture. So here they are in the upper room and it begins with Peter. And the long story as to why Peter, we begin with him because he is the official leader. He's being recognized by that. God's anointing upon his life is being recognized and people are drawn to him. And then it says there's James and there's John and Andrew and Philip. We have brothers there, sons of Zebedee, means sons of thunder. 
they're, they're the ones that wanted to call down fire on the ones that rejected Jesus. Um, and, and they've come a long way. You have Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, uh, and Judas, the son of James. Simon the Zealot, an interesting one. He shouldn't get along with Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, this is a, a man who is you know, committed to his nationality and to the Jewish cause and to Zionism. And then Matthew, who is in, in cahoots with the Romans, and he was a tax collector and a betrayer. And these two guys should be at each other's throat. It would be like you know, having a fascist and a communist in the same room just wanting to attack and kill each other. Uh, but yet, um, God breaks down every wall, and, and the most unlikely people are gathered together as the body of Christ in a family. You look around the room, uh, it's the same thing represented here. A number of folks that probably wouldn't get along with a, a number of folks, but if it, if it weren't for Christ, and yet Christ unifies us all. We're all part of the family. So this is a, an eclectic gathering at best. And verse 14 says, they all continued with one accord in what? Let's try that again. Verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer. Now, uh, prayer and supplication. Yes, Grant. Supplication is another form of prayer. It's asking God. Prayers are declaration of dependence upon God. Pray without ceasing. My Father's house will be called a house of prayer. Uh, what can we accomplish that is, 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 is of any significance if we can accomplish it apart from prayer? God commands us to pray. Uh, pray without ceasing. Pray at all times. Inquire of the Lord. Prayer is the gift God has given us. Now, I'll say this, whether you're Catholic, Protestant, and even go through the Protestant realm, cessationist, uh, uh, Holy Spirit-filled, you know, charismatic believer, wherever you are on the whole spectrum, we even have the ability within the body of Christ to be able to divide ourselves. We have this ability to, we, we look and we think that Christ doesn't, you know, the, the church is the bride of Christ. And we don't, we don't look at the church as the bride of Christ. We almost believe that, that God doesn't have a bride. He has a harem. You know, you have the Methodist harem over here and the Presbyterian harem over there. And, and he's got a bunch of different brides and the Catholic bride and the, this bride. And the endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There, there are certain things in that realm that are non-negotiables. And that's what we hold to, the basic tenets of the Christian faith. And if we focus on those, everything else, the Bible says all things are permissible, not all things are profitable. We look at these and, and we agree in the essentials, and, and yet we, we, we come to a, you know, this, this um, patience in the non-essentials. We, 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 we hold to this center text of the essentials of the Christian faith, the non-negotiables, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, the Trinity. We hold to those. But you go further out. Are women allowed to teach? Uh, w- w- uh, is alcohol permitted in a church? Uh, are the gifts for today? Uh, all of these are the non-essentials. Now, they're important, and, and denominations are defined by that, and there are certain things we emphasize over our traditions and a number of other things. But if we're going to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there's only one thing God has given us that, that transcends every denomination. And, and yet, it's the thing we do the least, if you want to preach a church down to a manageable size, you want to reduce the size of the church, you want to get a room filled with the least amount of people, all you have to do is call for a prayer service. That's it. We love to talk about it. We talk about the power of it. But I have been preaching from the pulpit every Sunday morning for years. And I attend to the best of my ability faithfully every Sunday night, our prayer service. And it is like pulling teeth to get people to come to prayer. 
communal prayer. I mean, if, if we did an auction, I could get more people here. If, if we did wine tasting, I could get more people here. Even though we don't hold this. Let's say, yeah, good, okay. <laughs> well, she comes to prayer. <laughs> Be drunk of the Spirit. <laughs> this is the best prayer meeting I've ever been to. I just love this. But we will divide over everything, but yet we call for the one thing that God gives us unity on, and, and we will argue over everything. But doggone it, if you, 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 just, you can't even get yourself to prayer. You want to argue, and you want to defend, and you want to go through your eschatology, and you want to go through Reformed, or you want to go through Arminianism, or Calvinism, or your eschatology, whatever it is. You, you, will, you will seek to divide and prove yourself you know, smarter, more arrogant, more gifted, whatever it is. But come to prayer? And yet, what does, it, what does it say? It says they were of one accord. They were in unity. It's amazing what prayer does. You can't hate somebody you're praying for. And the coolest thing about our Sunday night of prayer... We get the funkiest people, including myself, that come to prayer. And we have the greatest time. And, and some people even have figured out how to make prayer divisive. You, you, you pray your theology instead of praying God's will. And, and you, you, you make your prayer an opportunity to teach your position. Instead of just... We've got a stack of prayer requests. Could we just go to those? Amen? Amen. But we use that for, for whatever purpose there is. And, and we, the, the scriptures say, you pray according to his will, it's yes and amen. Yes and amen. You have not because you ask not. And, and, and here he's given us this power of prayer. And what it does is it unifies the body. When this church began to, to focus on prayer and, and the idea, a men's ministry will only grow if the, if the pastor attends. I don't know why that is. And I haven't attended. The men's ministry is not exploding. It's a good group of men. We're breaking out into quads. We think this new format will work. And, and I don't believe a prayer meeting will work unless the pastor attends. But guess what? The pastor is just like you. The last thing I want to do on Sunday night is roll myself out of my long winter's nap <laughs> after preaching a couple of services and talking to people and, and, and I, I, I'm just, I don't want to go to prayer. And, and oftentimes, people who've been to prayer will see that I'm praying by myself and there's groups or, or I'll go to another place to pray because typically when I sit in a circle, the prayer will be focused towards me or, you know, I, I just... I want it to be about the Lord, and, and I, I don't despise being in the group. I just want the groups to be led by the Lord. The Holy Spirit will make intercessions with groanings too deep for words. He'll, he'll show us what we ought to pray for when we don't know what to pray for. I just want to be removed from that. And, and yet I still want to be here. And at the end, when we lay hands on the sick, and we've seen miracles occur, and we've watched as people's lives have been transformed, and the power of this prayer, it unifies us. And since we've been focusing on prayer, I would say in the last, what, three years, Brett? Amazing things have happened. Unbelievable, miraculous things have occurred. And God has taken this little fellowship to, to accomplish great things. Not only here in this town, but throughout the country. 
Amazing things. We, the, the, the sons of Issachar, we've prayed for that every Sunday night since, since the vision came to it. And the sons of Issachar is to train a thousand pastors across the country with the skill set to engage the culture in the political arena. That's a pretty large venture. We've been praying. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of them. Three, we've been to three states and we've already broken the thousand mark. There's 47 other states, or as President Obama would say, 49 other states. That was nice, but it was true. There's 47 states still left with pastors in those states. We're even going to do it in California. Imagine 250 pastors in California decide to run. They do half as well as we did in the state assembly, 620 volunteers. Let's say, let's say we have 3,000 pastors running, and they get 200 volunteers. That's 600,000 Folks with the heart for Christ engaging in the culture. 720,000 elections across the country. 85 million evangelical Christians. 25% of them vote. You move that five percentage points, you dominate 720,000 elections across the country. All that by a prayer on a Sunday night. And yet I still can't break that 70 mark. It, it doesn't matter if I beat people. I could give you 20 bucks to come to prayer on Sunday night. And, and yet we... We would rather, we would rather, you know, contemplate our belly button than pray. Yes? Because it's unnatural to us. And what, what you're going to see from this point on, one accord, upper room, all of this eclectic gathering of people unified. Mary is there with all of Jesus' siblings, his brothers, his half-brothers. Mary's there. Let me just tell you about Mary. Uh, I believe our Catholic brothers and sisters have it wrong that, that, that she's the, the dual redemptus. Uh, she is, she is the, the equal to Christ, uh, that, that she was sinless, and, and I, I don't buy that. But in the same regard, I believe Protestants get it wrong too. I believe that Catholics venerate her too much and Protestants don't venerate her enough. And, and yet here she is in this room, the mother of Jesus. John is there caring for her. Mom, let's go. We've got to go to prayer. Okay, let's go, son. And, and there they are representing Jesus, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. She could have been embittered. Where were you, Peter? My son was crucified and you denied him. She's in the room with him. All the bitterness is gone. All the anger is gone. When, when, when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, his ego's gone, his self-preservation. If you, if you work yourself to get to a place of prayer, you can't hate people you're praying for. You can't be divided with people you're praying for. And they're of one accord that has to be emphasized in prayer and in supplication. God, please, we have to reach the world. We need your power to accomplish this. And God is saying, when you're unified... I'll bless you. When the Bible says endeavor to keep the union of the Spirit and the bond of peace, it says do not quench the Spirit. Let me tell you how you quench the Spirit. Make it about you. Make it about you. Make it about your pet peeve or your pet doctrine or whatever it is. Let everyone know how right you are. And it's my favorite joke about the Pope. He's up on the balcony at St. Peter's Basilica. And he's got a heart problem. And he's dying. And they tell him he needs a heart transplant. And, and the word goes out to all of Christendom and droves of letters come flooding into the Vatican. 
hundreds of thousands of people saying, I, I want to give you my, my heart. I want to give you my heart. Holy Father, I want you to have my heart. And the Pope is looking at this. He feels as though it's God's will that he would receive someone's heart. So he says, all those who are committed to wanting to give their heart, please come to St. Peter's Basilica on this day. And, and the Pope is thinking no one will show up. He steps out on the balcony and is filled a sea of humanity as far as the eye can see. And they're all screaming, take my heart, take my heart, take my heart, take my heart, holy father. And the Irish, holy father, take my heart, if you would know there. And they're, he's, they're all screaming, take my heart. And he says, I have this feather that represents the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to cast it from the balcony. And to whom this Holy Spirit feather lands, this will be the person whose heart I take. And he, he, he throws the feather off, and they're all screaming, Take my heart! <laughs> Take my heart! <laughs> you get that? So. The idea is we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And here they are, they're of one accord. Mary is there. Peter is there. All of them are gathered. And, and as they're in this midst and they're, they're seeking what God wants, supplication, your hearts are knitted to the cause that God desires. And you, you want to know what direction the church is going to go? You're not going to find it in a board meeting. You're going to find it in a prayer meeting. You want to see the boiler room of the church and why people come to Christ and why the church is, is being used to the Lord? You're, you're not going to find it anywhere but the prayer meeting. And for those who pray, it's, it's one of these things, it's interesting. It doesn't seem all that effective why you're praying. But when we get the praise reports that come in, we're not even asking for the praise reports anymore. They're just coming in. And if you could hear the praise reports, your heart would break. It's, it's profound. It's fascinating. Uh, we have uh, Jack and Sarah next door, so touched. She's diagnosed stage four lung cancer. Doctors say, you're, you're finished. There's no hope for you. They have been at prayer every Sunday night. They don't even attend the church. There, there's much they don't understand about the gospel, but they're drawn here because they sense the power of God. People calling from San Diego, I hear amazing things are happening. Would you pray for me here? And yet, this is the power of what we're going to see in the early portions of the church. The church is going to be added to, and then it's going to get to a place where they don't even add to it anymore. They multiply. You show me the power of a church prayer meeting, and I'll show you the strength of the church. You remove prayer, the church is dead with orthodoxy. Oh, look how smart you are. Who cares? Power comes by prayer. Power comes by prayer. Amen? Amen. Okay, I'll see you Sunday night. Amen. That's right. Some of you, you already know that joke. You're like, amen? Amen? I'll even guilt you there if I have to. <laughs> Where were we? <laughs> Verse 15, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Now the Holy Spirit is taking hold of his heart. Verse 15, He stands up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the, uh, the number of names was about 120. And, and now this is, this is where theologians differ. Some people think Peter got it wrong. He was in the flesh. Um, people think that they, they because they, they drew lots, which is kind of like throwing dice. It was a game of chance. 
the lots were like dice and they rolled them. They go, okay, are we, are we going to take uh, this guy or are we going to take this guy, Lord? And as they, they list these two men, they roll the dice to see who it's going to be. Uh, but watch this. Altogether, uh, the number of names was about 120. So 120 people were in the prayer meeting. And they said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. He had apostolic authority. He was one that traveled in twos, cast out demons, uh, performed miracles in the name of Christ. Judas had all this authority. He, He accomplished these things. And, and, and the question is, was Judas saved? You just want to say that or you just make you feel good about it? He wasn't. I don't believe he was. And the reason why I don't believe he was is because Jesus called him the son of perdition, the son of the devil. Now in the same regard, uh, Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, being the son of perdition and saying Satan is the one influencing you in what you're doing. I mean, all hell was breaking loose at that moment when Jesus was declaring his crucifixion, his resurrection, and, and Peter said, far be it for you, Lord, to be crucified. And even in his well-intentioned manner, he was being used of the devil. We can be well-intentioned and be so off-center. And we can be impassioned. You know, we don't want someone to suffer, but that's exactly what God wants is suffering for that person. We want them to avoid the suffering. God wants to take them through the suffering. And yet, he said to, to Judas, he called him friend, but he was son of perdition, he was the son of the devil. And he, nowhere in the scriptures did he repent. He was sorry for what he did, but being sorry isn't repenting. You can be sorry you got caught, you can be sorry that you're going to be hung, you're gonna be, you can be sorry that you know, you're, you're, you're going to be forgotten, you're, you're going to be the scourge of, of history that nobody's going to want to name themselves after you except for you know, off-colored uh, rock bands but you don't name your children Judas if you do the, you're probably in an off colored rock band <laughs> and, and, and here he didn't repent and so they're looking at his, and, and by the way how did Jesus come up with the 12 disciples he prayed all night and he still got a Judas right but the Lord had ordained that there'd be a Judas in the midst of them. And what was fascinating is on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he said, one of you will be- betray me. And you know what was fascinating about the response of all the apostles? They said, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it me? Why would they say that? And this is why. Because Jesus treated Judas the same way he treated everyone else. We love to find the people whose sin we can identify. I I can't think of a greater sin than to be the son of the devil. I mean, that trumps trumps a fornicator, that trumps a a, a sodomite, that, that trumps son of the devil. And yet they had no idea it was Judas because Jesus loved him the same as everybody else. If you knew at times on a Sunday morning who you're sitting next to, we have uh, have one constant and two um, off and on uh, transgender folks in our church. And they sit in service. 
And you're sitting next to him at times. And, and you, you can go off. I know, I know stories about people that you're sitting next to that you would, you would be shocked. I, I, rah, 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 rah. Yet, yet you don't know that and you're sitting next to them and you got your smile and you give them a hug and you greet each other and the, probably this Sunday would be like, oh, hi. <laughs> but the idea is to treat one another the way that Christ treated Judas. Nobody had a clue. As a matter of fact, nobody said, oh, it's Judas. Finally, you figured it out. He's been dipping into the money bag. You know why he had, you know why he had the money bag? He was the most trusted of all the disciples, all the apostles. They picked him to carry the money bag. Shows you their discernment. Just saying. And so 120 people are gathered, and they know that Judas is the one who, who betrayed. Now, this is also, I'm not going to go into detail tonight because we're limited on time, and I do want to get to the last portion of the text. For those of you who, you know, when you've shared the Lord with folks and they bring up this controversy uh, about the field of blood or, or you know, the, 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 contra- the seeming contradiction that, that Judas hung himself long before there was hanging or he impaled himself or he fell headlong or he burst open or he bought the field or they bought the field or it was a field of blood. <clears throat> it's not a contradiction. Uh, look at uh, uh, scriptural difficulties. Um, uh, what's the book? Um, scriptural Difficulties. You, you can go online and immediately dispel any of these things that folks would lay forward. And if anyone ever... I, I think I gave it to you, didn't I? Did your dad bring this up? And, and, and I gave him all the insights on it. And it's really simple to define. I mean, it's, it's not a contradiction. You look at it, it's, it's obvious the way you, you, you would see it. So bypassing that, I don't want to go into it in detail. He said, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. This is verse 16. And then verse 17, for he was numbered with us and attained a part of this ministry. Verse 18, now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, falling headlong. He burst open in the middle with all of his entrails gushing out. He could have been hung. Uh, I'll just make it graphic. One of the pictures, he, he could have been hung, could have been impaled, meaning hung on a spike. Uh, and, and this idea of falling headlong, the spike could have broken. We know that the earth shook. Uh, when he fell, his body was probably rotten, burst open. It could have been a myriad of things. And there's more to explanation. That's a simple one right there. And it says, it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is field of blood. It was well known. It wasn't, uh, there wasn't a discrepancy to them at the time and there isn't us today. And, and Peter goes on to quote this verse that God had given him. And in this quote, he says, Let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. And let another take his office. So from these two passages, Peter gets his calling to, to appoint another apostle. And, and to take Judas' Judas's place. And, and he goes to the qualifications of, of who has to be picked. Verse 21, verse 21, he says, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So they had to have been with them from day one. And he goes on to describe it from the beginning of the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us. Now, where this authority came from, how this was this defined, was this, was this Peter speaking on his own accord, not in one accord? Was, uh, was he picking the right guy? Um, 
he's taking these two verses, he's laying this out. I, I personally think he picked the right guy, although there are theologians who believe he didn't, and I'll explain why in a moment. So, so he declares that, that this person who's to replace Judas had to be with us from the beginning of the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So he had to witness the resurrection. He had to witness the baptism of John. He had to have walked with him. He had to be there when Jesus was taken up from their presence. All these things, the next person to be selected to take Judas's place had to be a witness of. These are all the qualifications if you want to be a Rotarian. These are all the qualifications if you want to be in the Kiwanis. These are all the qualifications if you want to be in the apostolic club of Jesus. Thought I'd throw that out there. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. Two guys. We don't hear much about Matthias following this. Um, there's, there's nothing in the scriptures beyond this about the man's uh, works. Uh, we, we do have uh, obscure para-biblical uh, um, texts that, that describe him going to different locales. And, and uh, early church fathers speak of Matthias, but we don't see him again in scripture from this point on. This is one of the reasons why some theologians don't believe he was supposed to be the next apostle. We know in the book of Revelation there's 12 pillars. And when we get to heaven, if, if one pillar says Matthias or it says the apostle Paul, it doesn't matter, right? We're all in heaven. Hello? Uh, I'd be happy if it's Matthias and I'll be happy if it's Paul. Okay. It, they might both hold the same pillar. How about that one? I never even thought of that. And then probably alphabetically, so it'd be M and then P below. So it'd be Matthias and then Paul. One of the things I, I, I've heard often uh, about this thorn in the side of the Apostle Paul, and he had prayed that God would take it away from him. And this thorn in the side, I, I heard one, one uh, theologian describe, they, they said it was his blindness because he had been beaten so badly that he was blind. And, and you see in his later writings, he said, you know, uh, spoke of the, the 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 font or the script that he was using, um, and his, and and alluding to his blindness, some felt as though maybe it was a disease or some sort of sinful temptation, or he'd asked God to take it from him and God didn't. Uh, I love what this one theologian said. They said they believed that this thorn in Paul's side was the fact that he was never recognized as an apostle. He always had to defend his apostolic authority. He was always, it, it, it's, it's almost like he was a second-class citizen amongst the eyewitnesses of, of those who, and, and, and here even maybe skeptical as, as Barnabas had, had been with him and, and he had been on having, having the road to Damascus experience and having sought to persecute, actually murder Christians. Uh, he, he was complicit in the stoning of Stephen. He held the cloaks while they killed him. Uh, he, he was given authority to go track down Christians and kill them. And, and so he was, you know, they were suspect of him. And it, and it took a guy like um, Barnabas to try to break the ice and make people realize that he, he's one of us, it's okay. And then he would have this radical um, conversion and, and be instrumental in the formation of the early church. Uh, and and you, you look at the work he did in the formation of the early church and the work that Matthias did. One is non-existent, the other is profoundly effective. And, and this theologian saying the thorn in the side was the fact that he was never recognized as an apostle. I, I thought it was a, a, a kind of a cool insight. Uh, folks will agree or disagree, but to me it's very intriguing at the least. So they lay out these requirements uh, for apostolic authority. Uh, 
And then they proposed two. They put Joseph uh, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, which is good. They prayed. And they said, you, O Lord, you know the hearts of all, uh, of which of these two have you chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. So they asked this of the Lord. Uh, Does anyone have a couple of bills any money on you? Maybe. Here we go. Too late. You're asking too many questions. I'll just take it all. Thanks. Yep. All right. Lord God, I, I have here $25. And uh, I'm, I'm, you, you go ahead and take whatever you want and whatever you want me to have. Let it hit the earth. Praise God. Is that how you do your tithing? Right? So, that was kind of a weak illustration, but I thought it was kind of fun. Yeah. That's the idea of casting lots. You know, it, it's a game of chance. Could have been like the Uman and the Thuman. It could have been like the things that the priests used. There could have been, they had every intention. I don't know. And they rolled these things. They said, God, show us who it is. Um, you know, upon who this feather falls. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> you know, I, I, in this case, they go, <laughs> you know, trying to bring it to them. And that is, I, all I know is they pray and they take a game of chance. And if they got it right, they got it right. If they got it wrong, and the cool thing is, we've got Paul and we've got Matthias. It can be right, it can be wrong, it can be oath. And they say this prayer, and then they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So he fills the vacancy for Judas, and on they go. And off goes Paul's ministry. Explodes. Matthias, nowhere to be found. Speculation, you can go through anything you like. I... I don't know that any of us in the church necessarily, especially the elder board, we don't roll dice when we're making decisions. We might have something new to do this next board meeting. Yeah, roll some dice. Um, but even in the same regard, one of the things we do in the board meeting is, is we have 15 elders. That's a large group of elders. And if there's a major decision that is, is really intense, uh, and we've had this on a number of occasions where we'll pray and one person... One person will say, I, 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 I'm not comfortable with it. And, and, and they're uncomfortable with it sometimes for selfish reasons. Sometimes they're uncomfortable with it for whatever. They're uncomfortable. And it, and it starts this tension because we're like, we got 14. Come on, man. And they, they get ridden a little bit. And, and I'll push them. And, and I love the fact that these aren't yes men. And I'll push them. And I'll, I'll be, you know, well, and, and early on, I can remember, Glenn, you can remember some of the elder meetings where somebody would say something opposite, and you, what do you, what, how could you possibly, come on, we did, and we would go through the night just trying to get him to, you remember that, Barry, and yet they would, they would hold their ground, and we would probably leave frustrated, but what was fascinating is we wouldn't do it unless we were unified, and whatever their motivation was, or whatever my motivation was, or anyone else's motivation, God always protected us when we didn't move forward uh, if, if the elder board wasn't unified. 
The times that, that we pray for something and they're all unified, his spirit confirms with our spirit and there's agreement. Uh, there are times, I love what Pastor uh, Mark Schwartz uh, we'll, we'll be talking about a major issue and we'll be struggling over it and the board will be asking questions and, and going into depth with it. And then Pastor Mark will, will share a scripture. He's a walking concordance. He'll share a scripture and the whole place will melt. It just, the, the Holy Spirit descends and confirms it and a peace just flows over the whole room. Uh, we've, I've witnessed this and I find that far more effective in my own life, quite frankly, than throwing stones, sticks, whatever they are. Um, you know, Jenga, we could play that, you know. I'm, okay, so I think I've run that into the ground. We've got 14 minutes. Let's pick up uh, Acts chapter 2, because this is a question last week, and I'm going to go into greater detail next week in relation to this passage. Um, I'm not going to uh, focus, let me just find my notes here. What did I do with the other passage? Uh-oh, I left it up. Oh, here it is. Okay, chapter two. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them, appeared to them, divided tongues as of fire, wasn't fire, looked like fire. Uh, the, the picture you have is uh, almost like 120 people in this room praying and, and, and a, a, an electrical current comes down and then splits into 120 smaller segments on top of each of them. And it appears as though it's fire. And, and there, the scripture doesn't say it, but you, you, it's obvious her over there going, no, I didn't. <laughs> but it appears in, in a sound of a mighty rushing wind. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't blowing, it was the sound of it. I don't know if you've ever heard a hurricane or, or been in a massive storm where the wind is howling through it. it, it it's deafening. It, 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 your, your chest gets tight. It's, it's, it's powerful. I, I've been on board an aircraft carrier when when they're just revving up these engines and you can just hear the intense jet blast coming off the back of a F-14 Tomcat. Uh, you can hear the sound of it coming through. Actually, you see the plane fly over the deck. You don't hear anything. And all of a sudden, boom! And the, the sound just, the sound wave breaks and the, everything catches up and you just, your chest and it's, it, this is the, the sound of a mighty rushing wind appearing as though it's fire tongues, almost like licking them, coming down. It, it, it's it's got to be a picture that they were all mesmerized by. Now, where does this come from? One accord prayer, one accord prayer. No division, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We we sit in judgment, we sit in, you know, and, and here they are endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I was on the Frank Sontag show uh, yesterday, and he had he had gone to Biola and he had prayed with a, a homosexual activist who who professes Christianity, and um, and uh, he prayed with him and and um, uh, the New York Times or some East Coast newspaper picked up on I can't remember what it was, and no quotes from him, just assumptions on his part, and he's getting calls from. He shared some of the names. I won't share the names, but big pastors around the country saying, you know, what, what's up with you? Why are you? It's this one topic that just causes the church to cringe. 
you know? And, and homosexuality for us is that topic. You bring that up and we are livid about it. We're, we are, we are pro-marriage. Are we pro-marriage? Why do we have so much divorce in the church? Are we as, are we as fervent about divorce as we are about homosexuality? Well, it, it love the sin, hate the sinner. I agree with that, but it's fascinating to me that this is one we can define. Well, they're, they're um, you know, look at Romans chapter 1. Unrepentant. God has given them over to a reprobate mind. Can a, can a Christian be a homosexual? Or can a person be a homosexual and be a Christian at the same time? The church is completely divided on that. Let me ask you this. Practicing sin, right? Practicing sin. That means engaged in it actively. And it goes through a list of a bunch of them, doesn't it? Anyone ever been in habitual sin in the church while you're attending? Anybody? Okay. Going to hell. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, how's that? All right. The idea is as, as, uh, as we see these things, I was, I, I was watching with Frank Sontag and his heart was broken because the church loves to define itself by what it doesn't do instead of what it does. And the minute you engage in that world and you step into that world, you're suspect. And one of the things I said, I told Frank, I said, it was Martin Luther King Jr. when he was in the prison in Birmingham, Alabama, and he said, the pastors had told him you're on the wrong side of history because you're in prison. He said, no, you're on the wrong side of history because you're not in prison with me. In the election, I, I said often, I, I said the same quote that Martin Luther King Jr. said, I don't know what was worse the voice of my enemies or the silence of my friends. After the election, I, I, there were certain brothers in the Lord that I didn't hear from. I asked them, just, just pray for me. Would you pray for me in front of your church body? I'm a fellow minister in town. I'm endeavoring onto a mission. It's a mission that will affect the entirety of our community. Would you pray for me? Ah, we don't do politics. Now, in all fairness, the church is divided on it. And as I, I, I've said many times, Calvary Chapel started in 1966-67. Reagan was governor. The state was conservative. We had the ninth greatest economy on the face of the earth. Uh, exploding space industry and all kinds of... And it, was, it was unbelievable. What's that? Top 10 schools. We had, yeah, the finest schools in the country. And Calvary Chapel started. And, and with the simple proposition that we keep the main thing, the plain thing, and the plain thing, the main thing. We teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Great process. Mosaic style leadership. Chuck Smith felt this and he started teaching the Jesus movement. People were coming in droves. But when it came to politics, Chuck's position was we're apolitical. We're just about the gospel. We don't do politics. The only, the first president that, that uh, Chuck Smith ever endorsed. Are you ready for this? The first president he ever endorsed for office? Jimmy Carter. Because he declared that he was born again. We were so committed to the gospel that when we heard the word born again, Chuck's heart, that was what Chuck's heart was all about. 
And now we've experienced 10,000% growth since 1966. 1,500 churches around the world, four of the 10 largest churches in America, Calvary chapels. The lion's share of those Calvary chapels right here in California. And in the 60 years that we have been preaching this gospel and doing the Harvest Crusades, we've gone from being the best schools in the country, being the most family-oriented state in the union, uh, flourishing, conservative, to being the number one abortion provider in the country, the author of No Fault Divorce and Transgender Bathroom Bills. What's the disconnect? But yet you say anything about that and you're, you're from Mars. I, I remember, and, and candidly, Pastor Don McClure, McClure brought me up in front of the pastors at the Calvary Chapel Conference and prayed for me because I was running for the assembly. And, and the Lord spoke to my heart, do not open your mouth. I wasn't allowed to say a thing. And when he was praying for me, the Lord spoke to my heart, nobody understands this a handful of folks that are my close friends, but nobody got it. And the majority of the room, you could sense it, was skeptical. This is all they've known. They have no idea prior to 1954 in the Johnson Amendment that every church in America had an election day sermon and endorsed candidates from the pulpit. They had no idea where this representative form of government came from, that it was established. They, they have no idea about natural law and why they avoided denominations. Why they stuck with natural law? Because they knew that the, the founding fathers would be divided over Episcopalian, Presbyterian, on and on and on. And, and, and as you look at this, they're in one accord, they're in one place. And yet here you have a major talk show host and the minute he steps into a world where he's trying to engage it and transform the culture, everyone who defines themselves by what they don't do starts to attack him for what he's doing. We are so good at shooting our own people. And that's why we are wholly ineffective in transforming the culture. We're single issue and we're ignorant. Most pulpits in America, most pastors in America have no idea who their supervisor is. They have no idea who their elected officials are and they don't know what any of the issues are that are facing their people. And I would look at those pastors and I'd say to them, do you think a transgender bathroom bill is important? To fight it? It was, a, it was a three to two vote in our, in our school board and yet to try to get them to engage, to unify, to elect a third one to protect our children. Oh, bro, we're all about, you know, hey, hey, man. It's a gospel. And the younger the pastor, the more they're stuck in this, this realm. And, and here you see them, the day of Pentecost had fully come. They were of one accord in one place. You had Simon the Zealot, you had Matthew the tax collector, and they're of one accord in one place with the sole purpose of transforming their culture and their community. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, a rushing mighty wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. One sat upon each of them. So each one of these things connects them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now again, these tongues were known languages as, as we'll go on next week in the entirety of the passage. They're speaking Parthians, Medes, and these are Galileans speaking other languages. Now, that being said, uh, do I believe in the gift of tongues? Yes, I do. Do I speak in tongues? I have a prayer language. None of you have probably heard it. Maybe my wife at times has heard a little of it, but I, I have a prayer language. I speak in tongues. Some of you think it's strange. I remember when I received it, I, 
I still use it. It touches me. But there's some of you in the room who go, well, uh, I, I remember being um, discipled by a college pastor who was from uh, a branch of uh, Grace Community Church, John MacArthur, cessationist. They believe that certain gifts died with the apostles. And I was given a book to read, and the entirety of the book was based on 1 Corinthians 13, and this is where they believe that tongues ceased. Starts with verse 8 in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child and I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And you can see in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of angels, but have not love, I'm a clanging cymbal and a sounding brass. The greatest of these is love. And the Apostle Paul says, tongues will cease. It's very clear. They will cease. And, And this gift will go away. But according to the cessationists, they said it's already gone away, but the text itself doesn't declare that because verse 10 says, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which in part will be done away. What does perfect mean? Verse 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I'm also known. That, that's the idea of seeing a person face to face, knowing that person knowing me as I would know them. This is the second coming of Christ. That's when tongues will cease. But until then, they're still on the face of the earth. They're still in use. However, that being said, and we'll go into more detail. I've got three minutes left, but 1 Corinthians 14, what you can do between now and then is read this on your own. 1 Corinthians 14. The Apostle Paul says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Amen? And we're going to do this next week. We're going to ask the Lord. If there's a certain gift that you desire, we're going to take a look at some of these. Ask Him for it. Pursue love. That's the first one. Pursue love. You want the gifts, but the Lord says your gifts are worthless unless you're, you love. And, and the, the idea of love is, is to love the unlovable. Love the difficult. Selflessly love them. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. But especially that you may prophesy... For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. By the way, when you speak in tongues and you have an interpretation, if the person speaks in tongue and the interpretation is such, pastors need to repent and they need to da-da-da-da, and they start, you stop it immediately. That's not tongues. Because the gift of tongues is men speaking to God, psalms, hymns, and spiritual praises. It's not God speaking to man and condemning them. or coming. It's always man speaking to God. Yes, that's the text. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church, builds it up. Tongues, for me, builds me up. Now, there is a way that tongues can edify the church with an interpretation. I've been there. I've seen it. A handful of times, fascinating to me and powerful and touched my life. I wish you all spoke with tongues, Paul said in verse 5. But even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. 
unless indeed he who interprets that the church may receive edification. So the one who interprets is more powerful than the one who speaks in tongues. The person speaking in tongues edifies himself. The person who interprets edifies the church. Prophecy edifies the church. The point is, is it's other-centered. And Paul says, I wish you all spoke in tongues. It is a great ministry to my heart when God uses this gift in my life. And, and next week I'll go into detail more. It's 8.30 and I'm limited in time. But next week, read 1 Corinthians 14. And then we're going to go through what occurred here in the upper room. We're going to go into greater detail on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gift of tongues. And uh, we'll leave it at that. Any questions tonight that I can answer?